So, uh, as you might have heard, we're actually taking a, a brief break from our series in the Gospel of John, because over the next three weeks, we're going to be diving into a topic that was actually inspired by the Gospel of John, as you uh, heard in the second reading, the topic of friendship, right? Because actually, when you really start to hear what Jesus has to say about friendship in John's Gospel, it starts to become clear just how significant the theme of friendship is throughout the whole Bible. In fact, here's the somewhat dramatic argument I'd like to make today, and that is friendship is at the heart of the Bible's message. Here's how one commentator puts it. The entire history of redemption, in a sense, is a giant cosmic act of friendship. Now you hear that, and I think some things get in the way of believing it, and I think one of the things that gets in the way of, of taking statements like that seriously is, we don't exactly live in a time and place where friendship is really well understood or applied. In fact, every major study on this, seems, on this seems to indicate that friendship is in something of a state of crisis in our culture today. I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that this modern Western world that we live in is one of the loneliest and anxious ages in the history of humankind. <laughs> and this is becoming even more true, especially true for Americans and particularly American men. For instance, this ongoing study, which was renewed in 2021, reported that 15% of men report not having a single friend, 10% for women. And here's how much uh, friendship has declined over the years. 30 years ago, 40% of men said that they had more than 10 friends. That number today has plummeted to 15%. And 61% of people surveyed reported that they feel lonely. And this kind of surprised me, but the rates of loneliness are highest among those who are younger. It's our youth that are struggling the most with loneliness. And all these things go on to explain why loneliness is being labeled basically as a health crisis or an epidemic by, by health experts today. And there's certainly a tragic irony to all this, isn't there? Because here we are, we're living in the age where technology has supposedly made it easier than ever to share life and to connect with other people. But apparently the opposite is happening and we're becoming more disconnected than ever. Now, thankfully, here's some good news. It doesn't have to be this way, because as we'll see, God has made us for genuine, enduring friendship, first with him, and then with one another. Put another way, the good news of Jesus Christ reveals the truth about who our greatest friend actually is, and if you take hold of that mind-blowing, heart-filling truth, 
we'll find that we actually have what we need to befriend one another. Fellow saints and sinners. Uh, I want to quote Vaughn Roberts here. He says, when we come to know Christ as our true friend, he enables us to be true friends ourselves. So the goal uh, for this, part one of the friendship series, is to give a brief overview of what uh, the Bible says about friendship. And of course, I'm not going to be able to cover it all. And in that overview, I'm just going to have two points that I, that I hope to make. Here we go. Oh, got to turn this thing on first. There we go. The first point is friendship is crucial. How crucial? It's a matter of spiritual life and death. And second, friendship is Christ-centered, which is how friendship actually leads to true spiritual life. So the first point, friendship is crucial. Uh, let's start by looking at the key verse from John that originally inspired this series, because it's there that the Lord Jesus has something very surprising, or at least it was to me when I slowed down to read it, right, to try to understand it. And this is what he has to say about the true nature of friendship, okay? John chapter 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. More will be said about this verse in the coming Sundays, but Jesus is telling us something that is really counterintuitive here about the significance of friendship, isn't he? Which is, if you want to know, understand, experience the greatest love that there is, that is divine full, agape love, God is love, love. Jesus wants us to understand it in the context of friendship. Because when friends lay down their lives for one another, one another, that's where you'll see the greatest love in the universe manifested, visible. Does that take any of you by surprise? Here Jesus is explaining the essential cosmic motivation and purpose of his cross and what he wants his disciples and us to understand is that the cross is ultimately meant to reveal and prove his friendship with the world, with humanity. So friends, when you behold Christ and him crucified, is this what you see? The invitation to put faith and hope in the greatest love ever shown, ever sealed and delivered to you, his friend? Well, I think one reason, one major reason why this idea of friendship being the greatest love is somewhat surprising or foreign to us is because according to our culture, what is, what is often held up as the ultimate form of love? Romantic, right? Romantic. It's all about falling in love, experiencing erotic passion, infatuation. But here's why that's not the greatest love. 
Because here's what any romantic relationship really amounts to without friendship. Misery. Utter misery. (laughs) The science backs all of this up, you know, along with an ever-growing list of very short-lived celebrity marriages between two seemingly, you know, the most attractive people around. Because no matter how hormonally in love you are initially with someone, unless that initial passion or superficial attraction leads to a meaningful friendship, that relationship will not move anyone toward joy. And otherwise, it just becomes this uh, terribly um, transactional, selfish, you know, interchange. I, don't, I dare not even use the word relationship in one way or another. Now, bringing it back to Jesus. If according to him, friendship is such a big deal, this should lead us to, to, to wonder and ask Why then is friendship so very broken and difficult in our world and even in the church? Well, the answer comes to us in the first couple pages of the Bible, actually, because from Genesis on, we learn that our friendships with one another are broken because ultimately our friendship with God is broken. We don't have time to get into all the details But Genesis actually tells us that our relationship with God and thus reality, it all went wrong the moment we thought we found a better friend. That is, humanity decided to put our confidence and trust, and by the way, that's what friendship is ultimately based on, trust, right? We decide to put our trust not in the creator God, And his word, which actually represented the very substance of reality and life, but instead we put our confidence in the untrue words of a creature who was only pretending to be our friend, but turned out to be our worst enemy. Of course, I'm talking about the the great serpent, Satan. And Satan is given many titles in scriptures, among them, accuser, liar, betrayer, thief, which means this, he's actually the ultimate anti-friend, okay? And I appreciate how Drew Hunter sums up why friendship has been broken for so long, all right? He says, before Adam and Eve disobeyed God's law, they already doubted his love. Satan offered them a cup of distrust, which is always the poison of friendship, and they each drank it down. They ate the fruit because they already drank this cup. The essence of sin is not merely breaking rules. It is breaking trust. Every sin is rebellion against God's authority, but it is also a rejection of his friendship. Under every sin lies a failure to trust God's heart. And sin, because it is inherently antisocial, always ruins relationships. So, as I've said already, without trust, there is no friendship, is there? But thankfully, you know who has sent his very son into the world to invite us to have trust restored, to trust him again as his very friends. 
I love how in Genesis you don't actually just see the, the fall, but from the moment we fall, for the enemy's lie, God, in his grace, begins calling out to this lost humanity, and he calls out, where are you? As if he's seeking after us, even as we're actively trying to evade or, or hide from him. God's pursuit of relationship with us is really the only explanation for why we even have this, why the Bible exists, okay? Because behind the whole Bible, what you see from beginning to end is God's heart to work out his will to restore a people to loving relationship, which, yes, includes friendship with himself. So throughout the Bible, you see uh, God's, God's relationship and pursuit of his people expressed through many relational symbols and metaphors, you know, like marriage and parenthood. But God also refers to those he seeks as none other than his friends. Let's go back to the very first one. All right, that top one, which is why God also calls Abraham my friend in Isaiah 41.8. Okay, hopefully you can read that up there. And here's what's great about understanding that Abraham is God's friend. You know what the New Testament calls us? Believers, his rightful spiritual descendants. We're in line with Abraham, God's friend. Furthermore, you know, we have uh, uh, Abraham called uh, um, a friend of God, again, in, in James, as you see up there. And we have another pivotal spiritual ancestor in the, the man Moses, another friend of God. I love this. I'll just go ahead and read it. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Why is God speaking to us, you think? Hmm, get a clue. Even in the giving of the law, he's pursuing friendship with us. Okay? Now, I know that many of us don't look at the books of Moses you know, like Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and automatically associated with friendship. Uh, but from a high, high level, you know what all that painstaking ceremonial purity and sacrificial law, you know what it all works up to? The sacrificial system, it functions to remove the relational obstacle of sin so that God and his people could share in a rare moment of table fellowship. The innermost place was where God and man ate together. They shared a holy meal in God's house. The tent, the temple, you know, like inviting friends and family over for a meal. And this is exactly why Jesus gets in so much trouble, eating with sinners, by the way, he gets charged with being a friend of sinners, doesn't he? Because eating with someone basically meant, uh, to, to some degree, a degree of, of friendship with them. In light of this, consider how the two signs of grace that we observe here at CTR, many Christians, they all point to that same restored friendship with God, baptism. 
What is baptism? It's cleansing that leads to union. It's a symbol of reconciliation with God. And then communion. We share a meal with him. We have table fellowship with him. Okay? It's all fulfillment of everything that the sacrificial system and the temple was trying to foreshadow. Beautifully stripped down to its essentials. In Christ. Okay? Now moving on to the wisdom books, the Psalms, the Proverbs of the Old Testament especially. They have a lot to say about friendship. In fact, that's where you're going to find most of the content there. You just walk away with this impression though. God cares intensely about friendship. It's a reflection of who he is and how he wants his people to, to reflect him with one another. But the one that really jumps out at me, anyway, is, is this very helpful negative example of how not to be a friend, which we find in the book of Job. You know, it's mostly an, an extended dialogue between Job and some of the most worthless friends, you know, ever. Friends who in many ways function much like Satan in accusing Job in the midst of his terrible suffering. But you know, you know who really stands out in that book as Job's truest friend of all? He's the one faithfully and graciously standing by Job in his suffering and angst. He's the one advocating for him even before his greatest accuser. While speaking truth and love to Job, even some hard truths that are very challenging to hear, and he ultimately supplies Job with what he truly needed for life. Who's that friend? Of course, I'm talking about God himself. Who else can it be? God himself, who was Job's true friend, who showed him steadfast love, loyal, faithful, generous toward Job the whole time. The whole time. Even as Job was going through hell on earth, God was with him. And friends, as it turns out, this is the same divine friend who took on flesh to seek after both you and me. Entering into our very own suffering, taking on the hell, which leads us to our next point, which is friendship is Christ-centered. In light of all that, uh, Jesus taught his uh, disciples about friendship. Um, here's the nickname some of the earliest Christians actually took on for themselves. This is what they adopted for themselves. It's out of Third uh, John, verse 15. He says, Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends. Each by name. We're going to start that now, starting with Carrie. And, okay. That's after. Afterwards, we'll do that. So John, the author of the Gospel of John and the letters of John, was one of Jesus' closest friends. And he understood this beautiful truth, that to be a disciple of Jesus, here's, here's the core part of your identity now. Individually and together, we're friends, friends, first with God in Christ and then with one another on account 
of what Jesus has done for us. To quote Paul Tripp, he says, Our walk with God is a community project. There is no such thing in the New Testament as individualized Jesus and me religion. Where there's no church, no one, where there's no church, no one another. It is simply impossible for anyone to be spiritually healthy unless believers are joined to the body of Christ. Imagine, imagine what the world uh, would actually see if it looked at the church both locally and universally and they saw true friends. Do you think that might give a little credence to the truthfulness of the gospel message? I think this is why Jesus had this to say. In John 13, 35, he said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, here's a passage that makes it very clear how Jesus Christ, the Son of God, wants us to relate uh, to his people, right? As, as how he wants to relate to his people as their friends. John chapter 15, verse 15. He says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. Now keep in mind, that doesn't mean that Jesus all of a sudden ceases to be Lord or that he abdicates his authority uh, and now Jesus is our little buddy or anything along that line. But in order to better understand what Jesus is, is getting at here, it's important to understand how friendships actually worked in, in his times in this ancient context, even in friendships across uh, people of different status or authority. And actually, you're going to find that uh, not much has changed, right? This, this, is, this will sound very relatable, but because here were the three primary and reciprocal, that is mutual, uh, expectations that friends uh, had for one another back then. And I'd say even right here, right now, okay? Number one, friends were expected to be loyal, not fair-weather snakes who slither away once they get you into trouble, right? to escape their own trouble or hardship, loyal, okay? Number two, friends were to be reliable. That is, friends put their faith in each other, especially when they shared an important task together. You could count on this person. You could, you could confide your secrets in them. Friends were supposed to keep each other's confidence, okay? And number three, friends were to be generous with one another, you know? with, with uh, themselves as, uh, as well as their resources. They were to show love by sharing. For example, a friend with two cloaks should share that extra cloak with a friend that is shivering. You know, it's a simple application of love your neighbor as yourself, the sum of the law. So what Jesus is telling his disciples here is, hey, we're true friends now. And here's how you can know. It's because I have shared and entrusted to you the innermost revelation from the Father. I've shared what I, what I know with you all. What I know from him, now you know. So, 
Not only does Jesus put this incredible trust or faith in his friends, you know, by sharing this most important good news with them, he shares his generous love and loyal to them, loyalty to them like no friend before or since. John 15, 13, he will lay down his life for them. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And he does this, he, he literally does this and steps into their guilty place as they're about to desert him, as they're about to fail him, betray him. But after that, you know what Jesus does? You've all heard the story. He restores his discipleship, or his disciples to full friendship with them. And then he goes on to grant them the uh, incomparable, holy privilege of carrying on his royal work in the world. This is crazy. This is crazy. This is like going from desperately unemployed and unemployable. You know, you've got every offensive tattoo on your face or whatever. And then all of a sudden, you're made a royal ambassador of the Most High God. There's no greater honor, calling, or privilege. And he wants to hook you up because he considers you to be his friend. Now this job, this mission is also why he shares what he's learned from the Father with us, okay? It's so that we can go and invite others to receive this same incomparably valuable gift of friendship with a king. You know, it's a a call to us first and then to them to repent. Repent of what? Our friendship with the world and the ruler of the world, the anti-friend, right? And instead... Put your trust, put your confidence in the truest friend of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in Luke's gospel, we see Jesus commanding his followers to do just that. Luke chapter 16, verse 9, where he tells his disciples, and this is in the context of the the parable about the dishonest or the shrewd manager. He says, um, he basically gives this command to make friends. Let's go ahead and read it. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Okay. Uh, Let me ask, what what is often the thing that we think will secure our future? Money. Money, money, money. Okay. But according to Jesus here, money cannot ultimately do this. It will fail us. It's a matter of when, not if. So, what investment will in some sense secure your eternity? The answer is friends who will receive you into eternal dwellings. Jesus will go on in Luke to talk about how you have to choose between serving and worshiping God or money. Because as it turns out, only one of those things, one of those friends can save you. Now, more more is going to be said about this in future uh, Sundays, but the type of friendship 
you know, that Jesus is calling us toward and, and, you know, toward one another, I think it totally transcends the typical friendships we see out and about in the world, Um, you know, which are typically about just companionship, you know, for for shared pursuits of of earthly pleasure, uh, worldly advantage in business or society. Let's face it, uh, both tend to be pretty transactional and selfish. No. We're free from that because our friendships are seeking after eternity. You know, that makes them truly different and by far uh, uh, deeper and richer because it's all about a mutual commitment to follow Jesus Christ together, to help one another to that end, right? To invite others to do the same. And that's really where I would say the deepest friendships are formed. It's, it's formed in the crucible of mission, in the crucible of the cross. I, I want to close where uh, Matthew 25 actually, or the Gospel of Matthew closes. In Matthew 25, Jesus teaches about the, the final judgment day, the closing of this age, right? So you know what criteria Jesus uses to separate the the sheep from, you know, the righteous sheep from the unrighteous? I think Jesus basically asks this question of people. Were you a friend to me and my friends? When I and my people, because I identify with them, when they were sick, hungry, thirsty, naked, imprisoned, where were you? Matthew 25, verse 40, to those who are his friends, the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So friends, do you know what a friend you have in Jesus? If not, Please remember this good news. If you're a believer today, you have been befriended by God, who you now see face to face. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. Which also means you'll never be alone. In fact, the promise is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, along with the whole of his church, will one day welcome you into eternal dwellings. Will you pray with me? Father, we ask that through your Son and by your Spirit, you would knit this body together in love, the greatest love. Help us in all of life to grow in our friendships with one another, through our friendship with your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. May we love and befriend one another as he first loved and befriended us. And in all this, would you be glorified, and may we be your witnesses in the world to your friendship. Help us wherever we go to make friends for your namesake. We ask all these things, Lord Jesus, in your most precious name. Amen.